We're going to be picking it up back in 1 Kings. We'll be in um, chapter 14 for our teaching. One of the things that we did, which perhaps surprised you, is we started earlier than our tradition, which is like 15 minutes after our technical start time. So we're going to try to be punctual as you are as well punctual. Um, part of that is just to, you know, practice uh, just good timing for you guys. We know that uh, as a service goes on, the belly begins to ask for its next meal. And we want to make sure that we feed you well, but not necessarily starve you to the next intention. So thanks for endeavoring to show up. That's what I have. I have people back there that usher me forward in a timely manner. So if you ever see me going out amongst you, guaranteed there's going to be a lasso that follows. So, <laughs> Chapter 14. Lord, as it has been prayed, we pray as well. We thank you for the privilege of studying your word, learning from it, being washed in it, directed by it, encouraged as we take into counsel your word, realizing that it covers both our lives personally it covers our life corporately within the church. It covers us nationally and globally. This speaks to all facets of our world system. Thank you, Lord, that we belong to a heavenly kingdom. And so we can take all of these things and realize that you are in control, governing. And you govern in patience. You govern in grace and mercy. You give allowances for turnarounds, and we thank you for that. We ask that as we study this, we're able to see perhaps its relevancy in the contemporary times that we live, and that we're also able to know that it points presently to our sure hope in heaven, and that there are things that will be changing and things indeed have become more difficult at the same time we are to be those who grounded in your word remain confident and assured of your plan and so in jesus name we pray amen amen at the close of the service we are simply rendering the tithes and the offerings in baskets here or in the agape box. And we thank you for participating in that act of worship. And so from last week, which was concluding chapter 13, for those of you that weren't there or may not remember, the title was Standing in Truth Yet Falling for a Lie. And it was very apropos because of the fact that we're dealing right now with a kingdom that has been split and two men who have been given great opportunity but both have bought into a lie. They've actually invested in that. They've feared what the people would do. They have yielded 
at the same time to voicings that turn them contrary from following the heart of God. We know that in this, it was a determination that the kingdom that was given to Solomon and passed on to Rehoboam, it would have been very likely established. It wasn't the same kingdom that his father had, but we do have confidence in terms of knowing that Rehoboam was going to preside over the remaining tribes, that was Judah and Benjamin, and it was to carry on the lineage by whom the Lord ultimately would come through, the tribe of Judah. And so really he had nothing to be worrying about except perhaps what we know was his inevitable provocation pride. Took bad counsel, acted arrogantly, and as a result, what is going to be seen in Jeroboam will also be a consequence with Rehoboam. And Jeroboam was given an extraordinary opportunity as well. It was prophetically assigned to him that he would have 10 tribes to oversee. And so what we see here is God's allowance of a separation of a nation, which was never his heart, but to endeavor to have them govern with his heart and to handle the affairs that would bring them still to him, not away from him. And Jeroboam last week had a prophet that came to speak to him. In this case, it was not simply a warning, it was a judgment. And the judgment still within the consequence was able to show us some grace in which Jeroboam's arm that had been reached out over a false altar, he was burning incense, ashes from bones had been as dust on it, and he appealed that this prophet would speak healing over it, and it did happen. But his heart didn't change, meaning that even in the dispensation of God's good grace, people can miss it by simply a decision to carry on. And that's what happened. We pick up in verse 14 with regard to this consequence in which the lineage is going to be affected. There's going to be a curse so in 1 Kings chapter 14, and a good verse probably to be anchored in is taken from Proverbs 20, verse 8, in which a king who sits on the throne of judgment scatters all evil with his eyes. This was a responsibility that all evil would be scattered by the eyes of a king who sat on the throne of judgment. Hence, today's teaching with that is simply this, that a throne is going to be overthrown, and that's Jeroboam's. And as you study and as we have looked at it, there's going to be a succession of just terrible kings that come on the scene. 
And from your remembrance of last week, it's going to be 300 years before Josiah comes on the scene as the king that is prophesied who will turn the hearts of the people back to God. There will be episodes of grave civil unrest, terrible consequences, and yet God has marked out individuals who will step into position and voice the heart of God to the people of God to change. Before we get in actually to the versing, just some catchphrases. I think this applies both then, but certainly now. If a nation moves into apostasy, which we talked about last week, then the church is vulnerable to heresy. What have you heard on the news lately concerning believing or falling for a lie or two or three? It's pretty relevant to where we're at right now. But the second note may be this. If the church moves into heresy, then the nation is vulnerable to apostasy. So which is first? It sounds very similar. It is similar. Nation and church are substituted. Who's responsible for what? It's both. It's a simultaneous responsibility to God, both as a nation and a church that is to be given both liberty and essentially pointing to the priesthood of Jesus Christ and none other. When politicians become priests, ain't gonna work. And when priests become politicians, ain't gonna work. And so God wants to point all peoples to himself. The cross is central for that. He wants to point all peoples to himself personally, devotionally, that there are no schisms, no divisions. That's why in the prayer that Jesus gave and that I emphasize that word one, 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 one. Because it's important to have that unity. No confusion. He prayed that for his disciples. Beautiful prayer. It was his prayer for you and I. Because the schisms cause division. And God doesn't want us to be divided concerning the message of the gospel and the work of the Spirit. Apostasy, just so that you can take it down, I simplified it, I think, a bit from last week. The abandonment or renunciation of belief in God. Do you think that there has been, on a national level, an abandonment of God or a renunciation of God? And I think that most of you say, I think nationally that sounds like apostasy. So the link is that this is what Israel was guilty of, apostasy. A renunciation, or if you would, disqualifying God to be God. That's how kings came into being, is because they no longer wanted God as king, ruler, over them. God stepped back, made an allowance, and we can see, based on understanding Saul's life, 
that it led to further decline and ultimately a demise until in the appropriate time David was raised up, made Israel a great nation because he had a heart for God. He made grave mistakes, but his heart was right for God. Heresy, simplifying or reiterating that, beliefs that are contrary to what? God's beliefs, God's word. And so when you start to hear that there are opinions that we ought to consider, reasonings that seem reasonable, we have to say it's not in the word. God's not apologizing for documenting what is the carnal nature of man, the consequences of those who pursue that and try to implement and employ it. It's not going to work. So entering into this, what we're seeing now is the consequence and someone who is trying to get ahead of the consequence. It says in verse 1, At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Please, arise and disguise yourself that they may not recognize you as the wife of Jeroboam. And go to Shiloh. Indeed, Ahijah, the prophet, is there who told me that I would be king over this people. Rightfully concerned is he in the state of his son. It would indicate that this is out of concern simply a sickness and he's probably right now realizing that what had been spoken of is now coming to pass with regard to his lineage the firstborn son in these times was the son that would take over and preside over the next kingdom He's still in his heart and in the back of his mind is anticipating that he somehow can still be in it. But as his son now is sick, and it must be a sickness that concerns him whether there will be a prospering of his reign or the passing on of his kingdom to his son, he wants to make inquiry with the prophet who had told him that he would have ten kingdoms given to him. He wants to go to the guy that can make him feel good. He wants to hear a word that will reassure him of right now an imagination, a thought that actually God's not considering negotiating on at all. He sends his wife in dispatch and in disguise to make the inquiry. Why is that? Well, he right now doesn't want to be seen publicly, either one creating the thought that he's not in control, or one meeting someone that may indeed realize that he is a marked man. So he's disguising himself through his wife right now. She goes, it says, in verse 3, take with you ten loaves and some cake 
and a jar of honey and go to him. He will tell you what she will be, what will become of the child. <laughs> Pay for his services. Get him to say the right things. Doesn't mean that, you, that you, the gesture is not perhaps genuine, but chances are it's very political to what we do know, a prophet that spoke the word of God to him. And so what happens is that in verse 4, as Jeroboam's wife did so, she arose, went to Shiloh, and came to the house of Ahijah. But Ahijah, kind of tells us his age right now, could not see for his eyes were glazed by reason of his age. You know, sometimes there are infirmities that afflict all of us. In this case, it was his eyes. And it tells us it's because of his age. But we're also informed that he was astute, spiritually able to see and able also to hear from God. It's really important to know that even in the handicaps that we will suffer in our lives, there are many ways in which the Spirit allows us to be very effectual. And for this man who had honored the Lord at the time that he was dispatched, he has that spiritual gifting to see what I cannot see, to hear from God what no man could hear, but to voice it in the manner that God says this is truth. So she comes in with these morsels no doubt they would have been appealing. Verse 5 says, Now the Lord had said to Ahijah, Here is the wife of Jeroboam, coming to ask you something about her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her, for it will be when she comes in that she will pretend to be another woman. So this is false pretense. And though I'm not trying to draw a parallel, it is interesting, pretending to be another woman. It sounds culturally like where we're at, false pretense, assuming that others have the right to be someone that they're really not. So whether it is in fact by disguise or whether culturally it is by lies, it's the same thing. It does not have a good outcome. It's not going to change God's opinion about what his word declares. And so verse 6 says that when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps as she came through the door, he said, come in, wife of Jeroboam. What's he doing? He's proclaiming the word that he just heard. He's not confused about what God said. And so he's simply beating her to what may have been the bribe. Jeroboam says, take this to him, all the goods. that Somebody would certainly desire to have. So he beats the wife of Jeroboam to the bride to the bribe and with that bribe it may have been indeed 
the king's ploy to change an outcome. To have this prophet lie on behalf of, per se, a gain. He calls her out. And in verse 7, Go tell Jeroboam, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been as my servant David. David again, in what is reflective of what he had done, is esteemed. God is esteeming David right now. We always think that it perhaps ought to have been Solomon who had a great kingdom, which pictured as type a kingdom that the Lord would and have established in due time in a time that we will recognize as a millennial reign of a thousand years. But also in a spiritual sense, what he's intending to do little by little, faith by faith, through the work of the church. But it's not kingdom dominion this time. It can't be. But he takes into consideration, reflectively, David. And I think that's an important reflection for us. Does the church have the heart of David to follow in the ways of the Lord? True. In every ordinance and statue and law and precept and commandment, does the church desire to be one that in a time in which there is ruthlessness abound in gracefulness and in mercy kindness, sacrifice? Does the church desire to be an expressed bodily figure of the Lord? He's the head, the scriptures tell us. What is it that we can do? What is it that we ought to be doing? These times right now are difficult because the position politically right now is at great tensions and hard to believe, but there are Christians on both sides of the political spectrum. Christians that believe in one party over the other, they have reasons for it, but if reasons aren't justified by the scriptures, then the reasoning is unreasonable, not honorable. The church, though, is being divided over politics when all of a sudden we'll see placards coming out and banners being hung, commercials being given, popular faces being seen, we're going to have to ask ourselves, is it the person that I'm into or is that person into Jesus who I am truly into and who's by spirit, he's into me? That's the question. So the kingdom has been torn. That's the revisitation of that prophecy. David is being esteemed. That's putting it back to his heart. This is the way it should have been done. Jeroboam, he had an opportunity to have the heart 
of David, who followed me with all of his heart. He kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes. And when he failed, guess what he did? He cried with his eyes and he sought the Lord for mercy and forgiveness. That's one of the classic attributes of David. He was easily able to be turned, provoked to brokenness based on consequence. So noted here. Verse 9, the indictment, but you have done more evil than all who were before you. That's not really a great legacy to hear about. It had only been thus far, thus far, in Kings, Saul, and David. So as number three, it doesn't say much about the progress that could have been made. We cite back to Saul because he was the first one that God permitted to be elected by the people. Samuel, as you recall, was brokenhearted. The Lord had to speak encouraging words. They haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. But I've got someone that I want you to go to. And that's how David came on the scene. As a young 15 or 16-year-old, he was writing songs for the Lord, devotionally singing songs, tending his father's sheep. He was little among his brethren, but he was big in God's eyes, which is why generationally we need to take a look at our young people and to be those who find ourselves encouraging them in what we know the Lord sees in them. You've done more evil. And it says, continuing in this, in the manner thereof, you've gone and made for yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. That would be a good definition of apostasy, casting God behind your back. No longer desiring to face off with God, to see his face, and I might add to see his face in the face of your brethren and your sisters and in the children of families, but just turning away, giving up. In our season right now as a nation in which globally there was a plague that's not deniable, in that two years of enduring that, there was unfortunately not a stealing of the heart and a quickening of the faith, but a quenching of the spirit and a turning from God. And I've heard the reports and I've heard the justifications and I still would say it doesn't matter. What matters is where's your heart for God? Why aren't you continuing in the things that you learned and in the work that God has demonstrated miraculously in your life? Where are you? I don't care about your podcasts. Every church is doing something in that line. What I care about is do you care for the house of God and the children of God who reside in that house? 
when we're together in unity as one, there is a strength. We leave with encouragement. We leave with saving grace and mercy. We are exercised in the distribution of gifts. We're making a statement to our young people. Those little kids look to see the relevancy of our commitment to be in the house of worship. It's very important. Not the house of the couch. I did that as long as I can endure it. And God finally stirred me up, as he did all of you that are here presently, and said, time to worship. I could have said, I'm doing so great in the home. I mean, I got the camera in front of me. I'm like four footsteps away from the refrigerator after the service. People aren't pursuing my brains. This is good. I did not like it. Loved my family and my home, but I wanted to be with the people of God. I really could not endure much more than the point in which I said, let's go. Let's do it. Resistance followed, by the way, in case you didn't know that. Some people that you may not see objected to it, still want me to reconsider my waywardness on it. Can't. I just say, you know what? This is what the Lord put on my heart to do. People were welcome to follow and welcome to fold up. But that's not the choice that I would have wanted. And so in this exhortation right now, he's simply saying, this is what you let happen. All of that worship that's in the hills now, in the forested areas, the altars, all of the vain worship, the idolatry that's going on, you set in motion and you did nothing to stop it. David would not have permitted this. You did it. Of course, we know that a model that was not a role model would have been Solomon. This is what happens when a stop point is not decisively given. No more. And so, therefore, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. This is verse 10. And will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond and free. I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it is all gone. Verse 11. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city. And the birds of the air shall eat whomever dies in the field, for the Lord has spoken. This is a pending judgment. It's inevitable. It will happen. And that means there is, for all of those linked to Jeroboam, a decimation that's going to happen. The Lord graphically allows this to be portrayed when sin is not rebuked, when it's tolerated, when it's okay. Well, they're in their section. They're they're up in that place. We don't really see them that much. I mean, you know, infrequently. They're not messing with our minds too much. We still know Jehovah. We still want to live a spiritual life. We want to do good. 
But the fact of the matter is that when sin is tolerated, and that means people aren't pointed to the greater option to save themselves, which is the only option we know to give them, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified, and us as well, being those who turn to the Lord and to be saved, to take up our cross and to follow him, then the erosion of order leads to chaos. We see it now just flagrantly in front of our eyes where there is seemingly no justice because people are afraid to make a judgment that is a righteous judgment because they don't want to offend. And God had no problem being offensive with regard to his disposition and his attributes, not at all. And so the consequence is very stark, alarming. He says, arise, therefore go to your own house, and when your feet enter the city, the child shall die. Jeroboam has not yet heard this word. The woman in disguise, who is his wife, has heard this word. How would that touch her severely? One of the things that we're going to see is actually a footnote of grace in the severity of the judgment. The other thing that we'll probably have to correlate is this is probably not a young child. To any mom that has a grown son or daughter, as far as I know of what my grandmother said and what my mom said and what I know Christy feels no matter the age of your son or daughter they're your child and this is indicative here of how this woman feels towards the information that's being given to her in the sickness that was probably of greater concern to her than it was necessarily to Jeroboam he had one that probably was more positioned in terms of what's in this for me. Her position was, he's my son. He's my son. He's my child. And so she hears that, and she also hears a determining time for that. As soon as your feet enter the city, the child shall die. Verse 13 and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. This is still a prophetic utterance. Notice this. It is a word of grace. For he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. That is an important verse, closing word there, because it is indicative of an observation that God made in this man's life, even as his family is falling apart, even as the nation has been divided, disunity, no longer oneness, and certainly not a heart as David had for God. God marked this man. There's indication that actually behind the scene, when he was perhaps stationed as a guard on the ramparts or in the upper regions 
in which Jeroboam, remember, did not want anyone pilgrimaging from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom to enjoy worship of God in the city of God. So he basically put up, if you would, a guard station. And Jewish history records that perhaps what God had seen in him was his allowance to move the people that were still in the 10 tribes, but who had a heart for God. And they weren't buying into this worship, this idolatry. They wanted to be in the city of God, which is interesting because that is something that God still does to this day. He puts eternity in the hearts of men, and inevitably they say, that system isn't working, that worship isn't working. What I was involved in, what those people still are persuasive in, it's not working. I want to become a part, once again, of that work. It's south of where I'm at. I want that work again in me. And so this child of this woman, very likely in history, is being credited by pass, pass, pass. Go, go quickly, go quickly. Pass, go, go, really, go. You're not going to shoot me? Go. And we have historical accounts of Jews, and Gentiles behind Nazi Germany who were facilitating the hiding of Jews who were being persecuted for their faith maliciously, horrifically. And there are accounts of those who would become martyrs in the faith as believers who would rescue those from a demise of a demonic person, Hitler, the extermination of six to eight million Jews. He's credited here in this voicing. And so, There is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam through this son. And that's why we need to really make sure that we're able, there's something good found in that person. Perhaps differences we have, but I know deep in my heart that God has found something good deep in that person, worthy of grace. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam. This is the day. What even now? And this is the prophecy reiterated that would be 300 years from when the voicing came at the altar of Jeroboam. Josiah will be on the scene. We would say, not soon enough. Who's going to be on our scene soon enough? We don't know. But we do have the ability and responsibility to pray, to vote, and we need to pray, and we need to vote. Not our will, God's will. Not our way, God's way. That unity might be the pleasure that God takes in us as we come into agreement. Lord, whom do you want in the position 
of turning back our nation to you, turning the hearts of people for you. Whom? Whom do you want? And so even now he declares in verse 15 says, for the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land, which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the river because they have made their wooden images provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who sinned and who made Israel sin. Then Jeroboam's wife arose in verse 17, departed and came to Tizra. When she came to the threshold of the house, the child died and they buried him and all Israel mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant Ahijah. The prophet, the one who could not see now, saw in the spirit what in fact would take place. Because this had come to pass, it was a clear rendering to Jeroboam of actually for him the expediency of judgment. We're not really expedient on levels that at one time God had expectation of to eradicate sin on a civil level. There's consequences to that. But in verse 19, the epitaph simply for Jeroboam is this. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and how he reigned. Indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Verse 20, the period that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years. So he rested with his fathers. Then Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. So his reigning for 22 years doesn't mean he died at the age of 22. It means when he took on that responsibility, his reign lasted for 22 years. Easily could have had a son that deployed as a part of the army, to stop the worship of God, and yet he admitted all who would desire to worship the Lord, and even at what be, would be peril to himself. David had a heart like that too, to be in objection to the attitude that Saul had towards David, whom Jonathan loved. And so with that, it's also a picture and I think that in principle, to what this says, I want to close in, I'm going to take you to uh, Philippians, if you turn there very quickly. So our first objective is to have unity in the spirit have a relationship that's foundational with God and for God, to esteem our family as God's family, to look at one another with great resolve that how wonderful it is to see the dispensation of God's grace on your life 
and the giftings of the Spirit to you. But I like picking this up here, and that is chapter 2. It's not in full text. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, that means encouragement. If there's any encouragement, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of, here's the word again, one accord. Jesus spoke it concerning his disciples. This is simply reiterated. One accord. Division, unnecessary, essential, Unity, one accord, one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also of the interests of others. One accord is different than discord. And so... A healthy church has unity in love by the Spirit as one of its central attributes. You can have barbecues and that's great. You can have opportunities in which we go and take retreats. That's also great. It's edifying. But the church isn't anchored simply in activities. It's anchored in the principle of unity at all costs to even ourselves, the esteem that we give to someone else for the purpose of elevating them in the place that God sees them, even as God saw Jeroboam's heart when no one else perhaps did except only those who benefited from his sacrifice. There were those who benefited from the sacrifice of Jeroboam's son, who at risk to himself from the position he held, allowed people to get ushered back into Jerusalem, even if they signed their lives over. I'm going to be with those guys. I want to be with Judah and Benjamin. I don't care about this other thing. To align themselves properly. That was Jeroboam's fear. Rehoboam had the same fear too. And his decision was equally wrong. Discord simply means a lack of agreement. That's a simple def definition of it. In musical terms, it would be disharmony. And do you know that all it takes for discord in the context of music is one note off? Just one note. That's why when you hear a guitar player tolerate their instrument... And all of a sudden they just can't and they stop and retune. It's because there's discord in the flow of the harmony and they can't accept it anymore. So they tune it so that there's unity, there's harmony, there's the blessing of a oneness with the other instruments that are playing. And though at times we go, why does he have to tune out? Because if not, he's going to keep playing in discord and it's going to distract you from the beauty of the poetry 
and the melody. And you'll start blaming your husband for singing wrong. It's not his fault. It's the guitarist. It's always the guitarist. 